Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the codename for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark the Funky Bunch, and you are listening to Talking Joe on your chosen device. And uh, with me is my new regular co-host. We can say that now it's the third time. It's Tim. Tim Finn. How are you, sir? Hi, everyone. Hi, Mark. I'm great. Very good. That's modest as well. Nice. Um, and in terms of my week, I, I've been, uh, I've had a bit of time off. I had the, the first half of the week was working really, really, really hard. So I could then take the second half of, of the week as a holiday because I've got a bunch of leave to use up in this corporate calendar year. And you can tell how busy I have been because I asked my friend, well, how busy I've been in the second half of the week because I asked my friend if he could create you a theme tune. I I heard this and <laughs> thank you. So here it is for the the listeners. Uh, it's it's for for the for the man Tim Finn who always takes his GI Joes with him. <laughs> there we go. You can uh, copy and keep that as a, a memento. I'm not sure where we'll use it ever again, but uh, but but you know, it's good to have a theme tune. I actually do um, uh, in my backpack uh, at all times for the last 15 years. I have a GI Joe uh, backpack in oh, my wow. back in my backpack in the small front pouch. Uh, I think it's uh, Footloose's backpack and. Uh, I don't sort of know whose it is, because uh, my brother had Footloose, but I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure the backpack is sort of filed away with that action figure in a box. Uh, and then just to confuse our listeners even more, what I've also had for the last 15 years in that pouch is a <laughs> uh, is a 1984 Transformers Autobot Brawn mini car, and then more recently the like 2008 revision of that toy, which is, you know, more poseable and more show accurate. So 
Uh, I do always have some toys with me. <laughs> Wonderful. Oh dear. Lovely. Um, and the other thing I've been doing with my, my holiday is just uh, building a website. So we've now got live talkingjoe.co.uk and that has got all sorts of stuff. It's got links to all of the podcast host, uh, hosting sites. It has got links to all of the YouTubes and it's got photos or, well, or little caricatures of all of the uh, presenters on it. It's got a contact box. It's got links to all of the social medias. Uh, so, yeah, if you're ever in doubt where to go to get your Talking Joe fix, you can go to talkingjoe.co.uk. Everyone, this is great because if you want to send an episode to someone or send someone to a list of episodes and you're not sure if they're an Apple podcast, Spotify, or Podbean person, you can just send them to talkingjoe.co.uk. Exactly. Yeah. One thing to remember, because uh, I'm yeah not great at remembering things. It's you know difficult keeping all that stuff in your old noggin box. And I've also been learning all about YouTubes as well, because this is a thing. And <laughs> last night I whipped up a short video all about my custom bound hardcover for the Devil's Due Volume 1 that I put together, which collects issues 1 to 25. So thought that would be a fun thing to share as a, uh, a debut new piece of content on the new Talking Joe YouTube channel, which also collects together in playlists everything that has been done previously on uh, on relating to Talking Joe on various different places over YouTube. So yeah, another single stop shop, one stop shop for video content. And I'm I'm also learning all about video editing uh, as, as well. And it's, uh, yeah, I've just gone down a, a rabbit hole of learning new stuff. Um, so there might be something exciting that I, I will unveil or will have unveiled by the time <laughs> this actually drops. Um, yeah, so fun times. I very much liked that video of your hands flipping through your bound, <laughs> your bound Devil's Do uh, press mm. uh, G.I. Joe hardcover, because uh, I thought occasionally of having some of my comics bound. I like the idea of spines on a bookshelf rather than issues in bags and boards and boxes and those boxes aren't very pretty and i like the idea of the kind of binding that doesn't remove any of the comic at the fold and being able to add in some things like you've got issues 1 through 25 and then you also have the convention special which was the freebie that predates issue 1 with some preview pages so i sort of vicariously have through your video that hardcover Ultimately, uh, as, as space-saving and pretty as it is, I like, I like flipping through a modest collection of back issues, bagged and boarded. I liked pulling one out of a box and reading mm -hmm. it in bed or sitting in a chair uh, as the actual object that I read the way that I read it. Right? I'd, I'd rather read issues than graphic novels or you know, trade paperback collections. I'd rather read issues sort of as they were uh, rather than in uh, fancy custom-bound hardcovers, but I very much like that people fancy bind hardcovers. Very good. And uh, actually, you're no, you're no slouch when it comes to YouTube your, yourself because uh, I've, I've seen some of your Hub Comics renovation videos and the level of enthusiasm on the video that I watched was set to 11. It's 
uh, great stuff. I'm just I'm pumped for for this Hub Comics renovation, and I've you know I've never seen it. <laughs> I've Thanks. never been there. Um, the so I, I bought this store in 2011. It had been open for four years, and we did a modest renovation at the time. Although we never closed, we replaced all the bookcases, got rid of a bunch of books, we painted, we got new lights, uh, we hired a new employee, and we also got an awning outside. And uh, later we redid the uh, air conditioning and uh, the employee bathroom. The building is uh, is old and we were always gonna need to do some more work and it's really grown. So what was gonna be sort of 10%, so let's redo one wall in the store became, let's empty the store and utterly gut the store. Um, mm. in, order, in order to get the message out there, to people who aren't walking by and seeing, you know, a little poster in the window, the windows are boarded up, right? It looks bad. During COVID, right. it looks like we're not just closed, but shut down forever. Mm. So for people who are not in the neighborhood or who are long distance friends and customers, uh, I've been making these weekly video updates where it's specific to what happened this week. Like now we've got electrical sockets or something, but the, the general <laughs> message is, we're still here. We're coming back. It's going to be great. Yeah. And then normally at this point, we talk about your Real American Book blog updates. And this week, you've got a particularly exciting update because it's all about you appearing on a uh, podcast. That sounds that sounds good stuff. Do you want to do a deep dive into that one? Because it is, you know, sounds particularly exciting. <laughs> I, I was asked recently to be the new co-host of a uh, G.I. Joe podcast. Uh, by a Brit named Mark. Uh, it's uh, You can find it at talkingjoe.co.uk. I'm recording an episode right now, and I look forward to the sort of odd experience, which I already had with uh, my blog and Facebook and uh, Instagram, the sort of crossover of posting a photo or a piece of information or opinion in one of those places, and then either simultaneously cross-posting it to another or making a mental note, like, okay, later today or in three months, I want to also post this uh, paragraph or essay or image on one of these other things and hope that there, there is this critical mass of people uh, following my announcements and, and coming to my blog. So um, hopefully that happens uh, with with the podcast as well. As I said in, in previous uh, episodes, I, I'm looking forward to the tens of thousands of new listeners <laughs> that I bring to your hit count, to our hit count. We can push on, I think, and talk about some comics. Comic talk, oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them, Tim and Mark discuss them, whoa. Comic talk, oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them, Tim and Mark discuss them, whoa! So, this week we are talking about issue 277 of G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, cover dated November 2020, which I suspect might be incorrect, but uh, let's not quibble too much about that. It was uh, relatively recent at any rate, let's say. We're only... One issue behind uh, actually what's hit the stores, I think, because uh, I think it's 278 has recently come out last week. So, yeah, next time we will be bang up to date. So this particular issue was written by Larry Hammer, as they all were. The artist is Brian Shearer. 
who is normally uh, the inker. And colours are Jay Brown, as always, letters Neil Utaki, senior editor Tom Waltz, editor Megan Brown, and research assistant Diana Davis. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Let's start with cover A, shall we, Tim? So that is the cover by Brian Shearer, looking like he is covering all of the duties on that one. Uh, my suspicion is, is this was probably done all digitally, but hard to hard to say for sure. But the certainly the the inks and colours look uh, digital and in quite an interesting style and it actually put me in mind somewhat of the approach that you take to colouring your pieces. That's kind of you to say so. When I saw this image previewed online a few months ago, I was simultaneously excited because the colour is uh, sketchy and um, you can see the, the brush strokes, although sort of as a digital tool, I think Shearer is using more of a digital marker tip than a brush tip uh the sketching of it sketchiness of it is is something new for gi joe and also it it it's how i would want to color uh gi joe comics if i made them professionally and it is how i color uh my my own gi joe art so um not not jealousy but something between familiarity and i wish i did that first (laughs) when i saw this but also excitement because sort of any time in comics that someone comes along with a style that sort of expands the language or vocabulary of comics, I think that's good for comics. I don't want to compare the coloring on this cover to Bill Sienkiewicz turning from a Neil Adams uh, sort of clone into the artist that he became on The New Mutants in the early and mid 80s in at Marvel. Uh, where he sort of brought in this Ralph Steadman splatter ink mm. uh, gonzo style, right? Because uh, Neil Adams was all commercial art. And when he was making comics in the 70s over at DC, right, his sort of famous run on uh, Batman and a couple other titles, um, he brought a realism to comics uh, that comics really hadn't seen. Um, so I don't want to say that, like, this one cover colored by Brian Shearer changes the language of comics but i do imagine that this slightly confused or slightly aggravated uh some gi joe fans who want uh gi joe comics to look more traditional and uh i would like some uh messy good coloring uh which would be different than messy bad coloring but um more more than just uh his technique i think his his palette and his light sourcing is is great this looks like someone lit from the side in a dark warehouse yeah it's interesting and and the sketching of sketchiness of it as you say is pretty unique to gi joe but also very unusual style and and for some artists this would be closer to their prelim probably than than the final piece of work i'm thinking of the the likes of declan shelby when he's sharing prelim work that that he's he's done or or maybe even Chris Samney, someone like that, that that they 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 will you know really tighten tighten things up um, in it, it kind of in a more traditional way as a as a final final product. Whereas this it, the the sketchiness is very evident. Cool. Um, shall we uh, look at cover B? So more traditional now, uh, you know that we might expect as a GI Joe cover. Uh, SL Gallant covers by 
Adam Gazolski. So yeah, Law and Order, as as is the case for the three main covers, uh, Law sort of crouching and firing a uh, uh, automatic rifle of some description, and and uh, bullets pinging off in the, in the background. Quite a nice dynamic uh, cover. Yeah, it's the the muzzle flare or or muzzle flash on this uh, machine gun is that more traditional visual language of how you draw a gun or a machine gun firing from not just action comics, but G.I. Joe. And uh, it's it's nice to see that because I don't think we've seen a lot of that on covers, but mm. that immediately flashes me back to uh, Mike Zek's cover to uh, 47. Uh, that's that's Devilfish, right? With Beachhead, Hawk, uh-huh, and... Okay. Mm-hmm. And wetsuit on the on the devilfish. Yeah, a lot, lot of people's favorite cover or one of their top favorites. Uh, I also um, Gallant does something which I really appreciate in all of his GI Joe comics drawings, and it doesn't make it onto the covers very often because it wouldn't need to. Um, he often includes a little bit of sort of realistic business in terms of background props, um, mm-hmm. where it's not just a rectangle drawn on the ceiling. And then we all assume that's a fluorescent light. He'll actually draw something a little more specific. And what he what he has here behind law is a a window unit air conditioner mm-hmm. sticking out of the window of this Quonset hut on one of those um, metal brackets that holds it up so it doesn't fall out. And uh-huh. also also it's getting shot. And it would be very easy to have to draw one fewer things one less thing yeah, on this image yeah. and to not put an air conditioner there, right? You could just have a window, you know, the background is nicely sort of busy. There's a, there's a his tank. And then Guzowski has not only colored it red. So it's, it's a very specific his tank, but also he has uh, knocked back all of the black outlines for the background to a sort of medium Brown. I don't, I don't mean the fill colors, I mean the line colors. So they push yeah. back and all the black outlines for Law, Order, and this Quonset Hut push forward. This this cover is uh, really nicely compositionally balanced. It's really satisfyingly uh, filled, but there is uh, a place for your eye uh, to rest. And uh, the logo doesn't cover up anything super important or get covered up by anything super important. Um, I'm, I'm immediately struck by both of these two covers that Order is wearing uh, a very specific and seemingly modern harness. Mm -hmm. And I haven't kept track of the last five or 10 years of action figures carefully enough to know if a recent version of Law has come with Order, who has come with this very different harness, right? Whereas the original action figure just came with a collar. And this is is one of those cases where if, if modern Joe artists want to draw the Joes with a modern AR-15 or holding it sort of down the way that we see soldiers hold their rifles down nowadays. Mm -hmm. I don't mind as much as I want G.I. Joe to sort of forever be in the sort of nebulous 1980s. It's okay (laughs) with me if sort of their, their like gun safety, their poses, some of their equipment does get modernized. And seemingly to me, this is someone at Hasbro or an artist doing some research research, or Hama doing some research saying, well, this is what, actually what a canine, this is what the dog would wear now. Yeah, I was, I was just quickly looked up and I see that the most recent Law and Order figures do seem to have uh, Order wearing that, that same sort of vest that, that we're seeing. Okay, so, great. 
uh, yeah, it's consistent. Uh, is it consistent with that? Hadn't, yeah, hadn't, hadn't even occurred to me. It's also it's also nice. Just one last contrast between cover A and cover B. In cover A, uh, Law's holding the pistol that his original action figure comes with, which always felt appropriate to sort of what he was. You know, MP canine. Also, he's a Joe and he's going into combat, so he should have a machine gun. And on cover B, he has one. Although on the original version one figure, he came with a sort of miniature Uzi. So oh, I that's right. It is actually oh, consistent with the. You know what? <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, my brother and I found that Uzi so valuable. We gave it to other figures, <laughs> and we gave him like this sort of standard nine millimeter pistol sidearm. I see. So yeah. So Brian Brian has correctly given him the weapon that you used. <laughs> rather uh, than yeah. So I was I was I was replacing actual Joe history with my personal play history. <laughs> How Very good. how embarrassing and cute. Well, I it's nice when when I am able to correct you. <laughs> Let's see if if that happens any more than once. And the third one is the the John Royal. Um, so that's Law and all Law and Order fighting. Uh, correct me on the name. Is it something like Desert Scorpion? He's got yes three scorpions sort of attacking him from different angles. Uh, it's quite a busy cover and to, to be honest it's probably one of my least favorite of the ones from john royal yeah um royal does really fun really exciting covers and um uh there's there's a little more going on here than i think the cover can sort of fully uh sustain and mm. i think some of that is the very pretty but very active coloring um, the the desert the, the actual scorpion the biological scorpion uh, that's on the right side um, that's getting shot through has a lot of very small active colors on it mm. um, there's you know yellow um, muzzle flash um, the desert scorpion the actual human who's on the bottom of the cover um, if this were an interior page he would probably be knocked out in blue or purple which is very much the style and coloring the last five years, uh, which I think was mostly propagated by sort of the top Marvel X-Men colorist, uh, Marte Gracia, but even Jay Brown does it uh, to some extent inside uh, Joe issues. I think we, we, we naturally go to Law because he's got this bright red shirt and this bright white helmet, um, but our eye is very much um, thrown around uh, this cover. His, his red t-shirt is very tight, which feels more... <laughs> It feels more super heroic than, mm. you know, law enforcement army guy. Yeah. Um, and um, something which I had to double check, there's a yellow missile on the top of the Desert yeah. Scorpion's backpack antenna. And I thought, that's weird. So I looked it up uh, at 3djoes.com and indeed the figure came with that. And there is a missile sort of stuck on the top of his backpack accessory. I think this is one of those cases where uh, it works in the toy in a drawing you could remove it because it's one yeah. thing too many and on yeah. this cover it's particularly one thing too many that said um it's it's still really exciting to have a super busy super exciting uh cover and john royal has a lot of leeway from me to go overboard because i think he can almost always uh pull it off yeah i agree uh and then we had actually two more john royal variants though so these were black flag comics uh, a set of Baroness and Scarlet. 
Uh, can you guess how much it was online to buy these two issues as a set? $20? More. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to guess anymore because it just makes, me, <laughs> just makes me sad. $85 for these two comics. Wow. Mm. Uh, so Scarlet, uh, yeah, lifting some weights there, taking a selfie by the looks of things, and... Uh, and the Baroness also there in a Cobra ad logo adorned gym of some description. Uh, again, probably taking a selfie photo as both of these characters are famous for. <laughs> uh, you know, know. Bro broken record alert. I don't love G.I. Joe covers that lean towards sexy for sexiness's sake. Uh, and this does feel out of character for Scarlet. Um, and the Baroness, I, I don't, I don't see them sort of standing randomly in a gym, uh, in a like babe pose while working out, and then also taking pictures of themselves with cameras. So, you know, I, if if you like this image, if you bought this comic, if if Black Flag Comics is making a lot of money off this, more power to all of you. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think this fits the brand. Mm, let's leave it there. Okay. Let's actually find out what happened in the issue in The Plot Breakdown. In a flashback story set during the Cobra invasion of the pit in issue 200, Law and Order are in the lower levels of the pit, looking for stray Cobras. In an auxiliary space between the floors, they track a crew of Toxo, Knight and Techno Vipers who are setting up a nerve gas bomb. Law and Order are able to eliminate the Vipers and save the pit from being contaminated. So, short but sweet, another one and done. Uh, what, what struck you about this one? Should we start with the art? Yeah, so this is the second issue that Brian Shearer has both penciled and inked. And he has this uh, more simple and very slightly cartooned style that uh, reminds me of Phil Hester, who drew mm -hmm. a lot of Green Arrow uh, during the, he, he did some of the Kevin Smith run uh, at, at DC. Uh, and then uh, a little bit Rick Burchett, who's drawn both some regular Batman and some animated Batman. Shearer simplifies. He doesn't patch and crosshatch for detail. He lets, you know, a pair of pants uh, just be an open field of color minus two or three or four uh, sort of ink swashes where there would be a fold in the cloth in the cloth um, where there's going to be a shadow and it's it's different for GI Joe. I really like it because it 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 forces us to focus on on story and acting and choreography and we can't get into the weeds of details like oh this gun is so cool or oh all these background little bits and grooves and screws and dots are cool because he doesn't draw them. Um, but his his storytelling is great. His acting is great. You know, facial expressions, poses. As with the, the self-contained uh, Duke flashback issue he did uh, two years back, I would very much be happy uh, if Shearer was not just an anchor on this book, but also a penciler. Yeah, on the on the strength of uh, the issues that he's he's done, I think uh, not many two people would have too many objections about uh, seeing more more from him. It's uh, yeah, it's a sort of simplified way of drawing, but good storytelling. He does lean into uh, 
to to some a bit more cartooning in in a couple of circumstances there was one that jumped out for me which was at the top of uh, page two where order is growling at uh timber uh, the wolf in the shadows and he's got a yeah proper proper cartoon dog kind of growl going on <laughs> i also uh, i like this issue um because they're in the pit uh we get some cameos of bits of a couple joe vehicles because they're just uh -huh. all they're all parked right so uh you know there's a vamp and there's a uh i guess the mobile personnel Looks, yeah i think i can see the, the or striker maybe as well yeah, on on page one, uh, on on panel one, it, the front of it looks like the Allstriker. It's colored sort of grayish, but it's 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 fun. What, what I like about this issue overall is that it's a it's a different kind of issue. We very rarely get an issue that's just one character, yeah, sort of doing everything by themselves. And three other Joes show up on page three, right? Snake Eyes, Scarlet, and Falcon. And this this is this is actual Snake Eyes. This is original Snake Eyes. Um, and they don't come back. A comment that I made in a previous episode where, you know, recently comics went from 22 pages, relatively recently, from 22 pages to 20 pages. You know, I was certain that these three Joes would show up at the end just for one page, and surprisingly, they don't. Mm -hmm. uh, this is also not just a, a, a G.I. Joe issue, unlike many. This is a comic, unlike many, in that, you know, if you're reading most series nowadays, you're not getting a self-contained story. You're not getting an issue that takes place during a previous story. And if you are getting a story that takes place during a, another story, it's probably like an X-Men miniseries or an Avengers miniseries that explains some character transformation from the 1970s. It's like, what were Hawkeye and this dead Avenger doing in the background during this famous story in 1979? Here's a six-issue miniseries. And what, <laughs> and what this is, is uh, Hama or perhaps, you know, editor Waltz saying, uh, you know, uh, issue 200, there would have been a bunch of Joes doing stuff or a bunch of Cobras doing stuff off panel. Mm -hmm. Let's just mine that a little bit. And at the at the risk of making that Avengers miniseries I just criticized, I would take five more of these. What are other Joes doing during issue 200? Yeah, and and I did go back and, and look at these issues, to, to the issue 200 and, and the issues either side to see what was happening and how it would fit, fit in. I don't know if you did the same, but... It, it definitely fits in terms of during issue 200, Snake Eyes and Co, I think Snake Eyes and Scarlet particularly, were looking around searching for the booby traps that had been left behind. I think during the arc, the only Joes that we actually saw in the pits were Snake Eyes, Scarlet, Falcon, plus Mainframe and Psycout. But I don't know that they ever specifically said that there were no other Joes that might be scattered about or be off panel somewhere. So, um, you know, I think it's probably fair to, to look past that and uh, not quibble. But I can't think of too many other Joe stories that are as focused as this in terms of spotlighting a single Joe character in the in the way that this does. There must be very few and far between, particularly in the recent issues, there's been that tendency to to have a whole lot going on and be juggling multiple plot arcs with characters in different locations doing uh, different different things. It's uh, very single-mindedly following Law and Order's journey in the, in this particular issue. Yeah, this reminds me of Special Missions issue six, where Outback has to get out. Uh huh. And you know, this is it, this. There there are hundreds of Joes. 
and I would love more issues like this. Uh, as I said, that I said this in the previous uh, reviewing the previous issue. I'd, I'd love two issues a month. One can be the regular story, and one can be <laughs> more character spotlights. And uh, the other the other thing that I I noticed uh, in this one was that. Uh, you talked about sort of a hammerism almost that it's uh, he loves to get in the in the detail and and sort of address the mundane and call out some of those particularly the you know the th- the, the mechanical things that are happening in a in a mission and, and this time there's there's almost two pages that are devoted to how law handles his torch so initially he's attaching a, a red filter to his torch and then uh, later on he's sort of making this mental note that he's turning it off because it's no longer uh, required or would be a liability. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine a Batman comic where Batman for an entire page for four panels adjusts the Batarang? Like that sounds silly with the right writer and artist. That would be cool. That would just be part of the story. To some extent, Hama does it again on a later page after Law is... Uh, wounded, he wakes up. He's been he's been shot twice. Plus a bullet goes off his yeah. uh, helmet, and uh, he's putting a field dressing on his bicep, one one handed, and he's quoting some instructions that we don't see that he either must have memorized or just read off of mm-hmm. a label. Do not touch the white sterile side of the field dressing. Right now, how do I tie the tails together with one hand? Right, this little bit of business where. Mm-hmm how do you fix yourself when there's no other person with a second pair of hands? That that feels very much like something that we, I, I don't mean like a soldier got shot, that only happens in G.I. Joe comics, but that um, a panel or two are set aside to deal with it in a realistic way. Yeah, and and I, I actually did have this one listed as my uh, on my hammerisms because it, it's something that is fairly frequently remarked on, say fairly frequently, probably like every five years or something, um, by by Hammer in terms of you know the the difficulty that a wounded soldier has in terms of applying a field dressing to to themselves, um, and I think the one that particularly comes to mind is uh, Ripcord on Cobra Island when he's been in that battle with uh, Zartan. Unless I'm completely misremembering, he, there is a sequence where he's sort of applying the uh, field dressing and and sort of griping about how difficult it is to do it one handed. And the larger point here is not so much that Hama has, you know, three or four times or two or three times had a soldier have to deal with this by themselves. It's that soldiers have to deal with this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even though Joes probably aren't going to die, they're, you know, they, a few have been wounded in the last hundred issues. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, this, this is not a fair comparison, but, you know, in TV and movies, when characters get shot, it's like how many seconds before someone else says it's just a flesh wound, <laughs> right? Or you know, like the the movie with Nicolas Cage, Con Air, where he's walking at the end and just a bullet goes through his arm and he just keeps walking. And <laughs> um, you know that that was not directed by Michael Bay, but in that sort of action silly Michael Bay way, it's like yeah, keep walking, Nicolas Cage. Bullets don't stop you. It's like well, um, also yeah. in terms of a, a thing that Hama does. Um, in this, in terms of keeping track of equipment, right? This sort of bit, this bit of sure. mm-hmm. physical business on the page after uh, he dresses his field, his field wound. Um, Law takes two panels to take stock of his weapons. That his um, shotgun is out of commission, and then there's this panel of him holding and cocking his 
his sidearm pistol and he over four word balloons sort of tells us how much he has left to do with it and how much it has uh, you know yeah. uh, st- still have uh, still have my two uh, still have my issue pistol and two extra mags what did that old armorer tell me back in the day when i asked for extra mags for my sidearm quote slick if you have more if you have to fire more than one round through that thing you're in more trouble than you can get out of by yourself true that right <laughs> that's a that's a really satisfying bit of of dialogue which speaks to you know like i don't ever need to see a flashback to that scene where some generic armorer is handing over a box or a magazine to to law but that he takes a moment out to say it and you know it's comics right like in real life you'd think that and in comics nowadays that would be a a narration box right but in more old-fashioned comics a character is just going to talk to themselves with a word balloon but also he's not talk he's not talking to himself he's talking to his dog so yes. he's got an excuse hasn't he yes uh, thank you a uh, good point one of the points I, I the thing that struck me actually from page one because uh, page one panel one law isn't just talking for the audience's benefit he is actually talking to order and the first thing i thought is hama is a pet owner okay like hama has a dog in the past hama has had a dog and i don't know you know if how much he's putting that into any of the relationships that joes have with their pets and you know except for timber uh the pets in the gi joe comics don't have a lot to do right like you know polly polly is much more of a personality on the on the animated tv yeah. show um but uh yeah you know if, if you're a pet owner I'm saying this as a pet owner. I talk to my my cats all the time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of affection there for 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 junkyard over over the course of the uh, the original run there. That, uh, that he's quite a key character, and actually one drawn by um, Hammer himself when he does the uh, breakdowns for for that particular issue. Uh, for I think it's the first issue of Snake Eyes: The Origin. There's one more. Um, I don't know if this is quite a, a, a Hammerism. But on pages two and into page three, last panel of two and the first two panels of page three, everyone introduces someone else. Yeah, yeah, that's a good and point. This this feels old fashioned, right? So you know, uh, Scarlet walks in and says, "Don't you remember Snake Eyes is Timber?" And then from off panel, Scarlet, right? Like I'm sure in actuality, Law saw Scarlet an hour ago, but. The, the Jim Shooter rule a, at Marvel in 1980s, he was the editor-in-chief, was every comic is someone's first comic. And so every character has to get named and uh, every sort of power set, you know, if we're talking like X-Men, uh, has to get introduced, which is why like in every issue, you know, of, of X-Men, Wolverine like says what he does. It's like, well, with my unbreakable skeleton and yeah. razor sharp adamantium closet can cut through anything. And, you know, when you read it all at once, a big stack or collected in a book, it sticks out. But um, that's fine with me. Like, you know, this issue, you know, there are there are lapsed Joe fans or lapsed readers coming back to this comic. And uh, yes, iconically, people know who Scarlet and Snake Eyes are. But, you know, you look at Falcon on the right there and you might think, Ah, which of the like eight Joes in basic green fatigues is this? So mm, yeah. um as a as a sort of comics one oh one thing, I don't mind. Yeah, yeah. And it's and it's 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 I I this one skipped skipped me by, but it's it's definitely a, a hammerism in terms of that uh, style of making sure that 
characters get a name check uh, from another character on the page that they're introduced and uh, in those sequences particularly where they're about to jump out of a of, of a plane where they're sort of saying uh, that their buddy in front of them that their their gears all uh, tight and they're ready to to jump you know <laughs> those are uh, uh, sort of stick out a little bit more where it is just one person saying the name of the person in front of them uh, but uh, yeah so for for some reason i think uh, the very um satisfying uh, sequences when when they do do that um was there anything else that you wanted to call out before we move into spotting uh the little details in i spy no let's let's do i spy i spy with my little eye so i spy uh, <laughs> a cute little segment at the very end so uh just as uh order is is laying down and, and law thinks that might he might have died and he says goodbye bud and um on that little panel there <laughs> he's got his tongue out and giving a little a little quiet slurp uh, law to order <laughs> it's quite subtle but um quite uh, humorous <laughs> um i don't think i i don't think i quite caught that when i read it i think on the final page i'm sort of rushing to get to the final final panel and also seeing the preview for the next issue on the next page yeah it's a reciprocated slurp uh, from <laughs> order on the very final panel i spy on uh page uh five a giant ventilation fan and law takes a whole panel to call oh. it out now that is one <laughs> big ventilation fan good thing it's switched off huh yeah um and this is this is a great example of Chekhov's gun right like I don't know what's going to happen in this issue, but we're going to see that vent again and it's going <laughs> to get sure. used. And and I thought um, someone's either going to go into the tunnel behind it, someone's going to come out of it, or it's going to turn on and, and injure someone, not chop them up like a horror film. And then I thought, well, you know, G.I. Joe's not a horror comic. I think it's much more mechanical. Like someone will use the space behind it or it'll be an element of surprise. And then... Um, on the next page, he walks away from it, and then a couple pages later, uh, he passes it again, and then at the end of the story, it does indeed sort of save the day. And um, I, you know, having read Larry Hama plots, he he is aware of not only that kind of sort of writing 101 thing, introducing an element and then using it at the end, but also making sure his artist knows it's going to be important yep. to like draw it clearly or to, to give it enough space because we're going to see it again. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and, and similarly, um, Law has an extra accessory in this issue. He's got uh, an ammo belt over his shoulder of mm -hmm. shotgun shells. And maybe while I'm finishing this sentence, you can rush to the internet, Mark, and tell me that indeed that was an added accessory for a more recent action figure. But it's not part of the original Laws action figure. Yeah, I, th I think um, I think without even without looking up, my guess is is that this is just an addition for this particular issue. That yeah, on the I'm jumping ahead to you to law version 7 from 2016 um he doesn't come with a shotgun or, or that um, sort of bandolier of, of shotgun shells i think that is just as a consequence of larry wanting uh law to have his main weapon in this issue being a, a shotgun yeah he he needs a shotgun because 
when he shoots the Toxo Viper, he needs to do enough damage that the Toxo Viper is mostly out of the story, but is still alive. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I can see Hama making this calculation, right? Okay, pistol sidearm <laughs> or something bigger. Like, all right, he's gonna be he's gonna be sweeping the tunnels with a shotgun. Yeah, it makes sense. Seems like a sensible kind of weapon to use in those circumstances as well. And the other thing that I spied was that back in issue 199, uh, where this story is set shortly after, Cobra troops were deserting and they were dumping their gear because they had transponders in their helmets and didn't want to be tracked. And so that is the callback to uh, on, that we see in a couple of places in the issue, particularly on page one, where these there's these weapons and particularly helmets which are sort of scattered on the floor. And you're thinking, what's that all about? Um, because, yeah, the Cobras we see later on, they're not, you know, they're not in their uh, underwear or anything like that. It's it's to that, uh, it's a callback to that particular pop plot point from uh, from those issues. I spy on page nine. But, okay, when both the Night Viper gets shot at the top of the page and the Toxo Viper gets shot on the bottom, um, there's a big sort of burst of yellow and orange. And there's no blood. There's no red. Mm. And I appreciate that. Uh, I don't think uh, action movies and comics should be bloodless, right? Like uh, sort of the, my go-to example for the incon incongruity of this is uh, Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight, his second Batman movie, where that movie really feels like an R-rated movie because it's so intense and terrible things happen, yeah. but there's no cursing and there's no blood. Considering mm -hmm. all the terrible things that happened in that movie, including a bank manager gets shot in the chest in the opening scene, no uh -huh. blood. And I think where it's appropriate, it's fine. Um, but, you know, I also grew up reading comics code approved comics where you, you don't see exit wounds and blood is colored brown or black because like, think of the children. Um, <laughs> I do think that, you know, G.I. Joe is is action. And I guess there's red on the next page where he gets Law gets shot in the arm. Um, but um, as a contrast to some of the sword slashing ninja action in Netho Diaz's uh, like issue 250 and also the miniseries he drew Silent App Option, yeah. which had a, a mature reader's label on it, um, uh -huh. those comics had a lot of blood. And yes, the G.I. Joe audience has gotten older and sort of we can handle it. Um, but I think at its core, G.I. Joe wants to be, you know, PG, not so much PG-13. So I appreciated that that uh, Shearer is is uh, keeping the uh, keeping that kind of blasting uh, modest. OK, cool. And was that anything else for I spying? Can a German shepherd drag a 175 pound <laughs> man like 30 feet on the floor? Well, it's a good question, and maybe we can uh, ponder it as we move on to Error Detected. <laughs> Error Detected. Error Detected. No prize incoming. The answer is yes, if you're a particularly good dog. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's okay, move so, on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I. It's... You know, it's 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 not real life. It's a comic book, uh, and certainly, uh, I want I want these two main characters to get out of this danger alive and well. So, 
uh, I'll give I'll give some leeway there. The the error that I spotted was, and I wonder how many of the if you spotted either of the either of these errors. Actually, let's let's move it over to you. Did you spot any other errors? Um, this isn't an error so much as one of my design gripes on page one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's some word balloon placement that is unsatisfying. The establishing shot where we see what Law sees, these four uh -huh. vipers are planting this bomb and we can see where they're standing in relation to each other. I think the combination of uh, Brian Shearer not putting a lot of headroom on this panel, Hama writing a lot of dialogue, on this for this panel and uh, letterer Iwatake placing the balloons where they did. Two of the balloons are sort of stamped down on people's feet where they're standing, yeah. which is, uh, I think generally, I'm, I'm not a professional letterer, but I think that's generally a no-no. Yeah, uh, the way that Larry writes often, the, the illustrators have got no idea about the dialogue that was gonna have to fit in the page and, and who's gonna be talking first and when, but I guess because the Techno Viper is the person speaking second. The dialogue should be down and to the right of the, the first speaker. So there's only really one place to, to, to that it can be put without then causing the difficulty of the uh, the second person speaking and the dialogue starting on the to the left of the, the first speaker, if that makes sense. So yeah, I, I get what you mean. It's uh, it's yeah, unsatisfying that it's breaking it's breaking unwritten lettering rules, isn't it? That, that you're covering up uh, key parts of the uh, illustration. But Jay Brown colors uh, a green glow for this scene, mm -hmm. and for the atmosphere, I like it. But for the physicality of it, I don't understand it. <laughs> yeah, like, I'm in. On, this, I'm on. I'm on that page. Yeah, on the previous page, right. Law's shining his red flashlight and everything in front of him is red. Also, everything behind him is red, which I don't understand, but clo <laughs> close enough, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, Law says some sort of glow, and we see in the distance this green glow, and then on the next panel, we see like a green illumination. And then this establishing panel with these four vipers planting this bomb, the walls and the ground are sort of greenish, but there is no light source. There's a tiny light on the top of the panel, which just sort of looks yellow, but mm -hmm. um, there's sort of an invisible green light source for this scene, which again, emotionally it works, physically it doesn't. It's it's the green light that's by the Toxovipers' feet. That's... Uh... <laughs> oh, right, that, that we can't see because it's covered by a, by a window. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would make sense, actually. The placement of it even was uh, maybe not too far off. I did spot a, a couple of big, bigger errors, and uh, so so here we go. The first one is that Law refers to himself as Kurt Bazigian or Mrs. Bazigian's son, and as I'm sure all Joe fans know, the Bazigian was the longtime product manager for Hasbro, and the physical appearance of Law was based on him. But his file card name was Christopher M. Levine not Kurt Bazigian, which I'm guessing is uh, Larry forgetting that, uh, well, uh, Law was based on him. His file card name was not, uh, was not Kirk's. I, I would, uh, I would point to the, the various editors um, who are checking this as it gets made to make sure that, you know, facts, facts stay straight and continuity uh, mm. is clean. I don't really mind 
It's fine. And and we can no prize it. So his file card name is uh, not his real name. He was brought up as Kirk Bazigian. Something happened in his youth or young adulthood, which meant that he had to change his name for uh, legal or protection reasons. So the name that appears on his file card is not the name that he grew up with. The second one was, as Law uses the large ventilation fan to disperse the gas from inside the pit, we see the gas being expelled up through the huts on the surface. But the Quonset huts had actually been destroyed as part of the Cobra invasion. So even as back as far as issue 197, when we see the aftermath of the Cobra invasion of the pit, they are in a state of destruction. So they have been miraculously back in a back in a full state i think i can no prize this one as well uh which is that uh, the scene we're seeing of the gas escaping is actually law thinking about the consequences of him saving the day and he hasn't been up to the surface since the invasion so he doesn't actually know wh- what the state of those huts is so when he's imagining the gas escaping he is just imagining the huts standing as they would normally be. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Can a can a Techno Viper's helmet fit over a German <laughs> Shepherd's muzzle and head? Um, and 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 again, you know, like a German Shepherd dragging an adult man. I don't know, but uh, Your Honor, I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, Hammerisms, I spotted a couple. Stop. Time. time to beat the soles of your boots with my face. Sucking chest wounds, red ninjas, brain scanners, rubber hooses, blue ninjas. And some more sucking chest wounds. Hammer time. So the first one was some very much favourites in terms of dialogue. We had Suck It Up and Charlie Mike. And also, uh, for good measure, we had a cluster foul-up happening. But in terms of plots, you can get anywhere in a secret base via heating, ventilation, air conditioning, sewer, plumbing systems, you name it, that's the way to go. And uh, we even saw the Joes going through uh, a drainage tunnel to get to the uh, inside the base last issue. So maybe lesser hammerism and more just general uh, fictionalism uh, because everybody does it. But uh, but I'll I'll point it out because it's there. I'm I'm thinking of another general aspect of this issue that I really like. This is this is not I Spy or any kind of error. We have four Cobra Vipers, two Night Vipers, a Toxo Viper, and a Techno Viper, doing what they do, mm. which is satisfying, right? There are two Night Vipers who are keeping watch in an environment where there are few lights or no lights. There's a Techno Viper who's fixing something or getting something technically, mechanically ready, in this case, a bomb or a, 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 a gas bomb. And then we have a Toxo Viper who knows something about poison gas and, and is sort of in charge of, of that. And, you know, even though, you know, I feel like a lot of Cobra Vipers, not in, in comics, I think in all of G.I. Joe, I feel like a lot of Cobra Vipers they would actually overlap with other vipers you know like surely most vipers have some kind of night vision built into these crazy mm-hmm. helmets that they have right yeah. so do you have a squad that's specifically just for nighttime missions it's like 
or do you actually sort of rewrite it so that regular vipers change their costumes and they put on night viper costumes when it's a nighttime mission uh, but you know what if a mission lasts more than one day but in terms of the accessorizing of the gi joe toy line you know like one i don't care i just need more different kinds of guys because they look cool and two <laughs> as a kid playing with toys i'm going to use the desert scorpion in in a temperate mission and i'm going to use regular vipers uh in a desert mission right maybe the desert scorpions lead them yeah so it's great when these comics can find a little way to spotlight that in the way that uh, you know, Law is doing something that Order can help him do. Order can sniff out bad guys. Uh, and this issue would run differently if it was a different Joe. This issue would run differently if it was different Cobras. Good points. Nice to see. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been a lot of use of, for example, Frag Vipers over over recent issues, but sort of interchangeable with really any other sort of Viper most of the time. So it is, it is good to see them leaning into those uh, specializations and and actually having uh, the, the specific Vipers serve their intended specific purpose. Satisfying. Quote of the week, 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 quote of the week. In terms of favourite live dialogues, you already said it. It was Law's old armourer who told him that, Slick, if you have to fire one more round through that thing, then you're in more trouble than you can get out by yourself. True that. Did you have a favorite line of dialogue? Yeah, two pages later, uh, Law is wobbly. He goes, uh, he's whispering, ugh, I should have popped an ibuprofen from my aid pack. And then in the next panel, he drops his gun. It's, it's infrequent, relatively, that Joes get injured in the Joe comics. The stakes here are higher because this isn't five Joes on a team or a squad doing this mission. This is one. So if, if Law can't continue the mission, right, we're all in trouble. And then when he drops his gun, uh, it makes a noise and alerts uh, one of the Cobras to his position. Um, but this, this very specific, you know, not just it's hard to do this, but I'm in pain. I want to take a pill. Mm -hmm. I want to literally take a pill. <laughs> uh, again, it's, it's, it's a little dose of, it's a dose of, of grounded realism in a comic that's always sort of balance that always veers between fantastical and realism good stuff and mvp who was our favorite character in the issue who is the mvp most valuable person in these issues who is the mvp is it a cobra joe or the enemy <laughs> order the dog <laughs> very good um and i i said that'd be contrary and i will i'll go with the uh toxo viper because he got he got full-on shotgun blast to his chest there and uh he's he's not in a good place but he he's you know continuing his mission in his own special way as as well so um you know he may be evil but you know he's he's dedicated um and then Yo Joage. So our rating out of ten for for this one, it's I think it's a strong issue. It's it's probably one of the th ones that I've enjoyed the most out of uh, out of recent issues for sure. Seven. Seven. Yeah, I'll I'll go I'll go seven point five on this, uh, just purely because I tend to <laughs> rate higher generally. I think part of my scale 
uh, oftentimes when I'm reading a comic, crossing through my mind is, could I give this comic to a non-comic reader, or could I give this G.I. Joe comic to a non-G.I. Joe comic reader? And this issue particularly, the answer is yes. It's not so embedded in continuity, or it's not so hung up on sort of the, the, the tropes of, of G.I. Joe and Cobra that I think it would turn off someone who's not necessarily a big fan, you know? Mm. Like, like I know that some of the licensed Buffy the Vampire Slayer comics are really good, and I also know that some of them are only okay. But sorry, Buffy fans, I'm never going to read a Buffy comic, right? And you could, <laughs> you could tell me, you could tell me, like, no, no, this, this one, even if you've never seen the show, it's just a good comic. And I'd say, no, thank you. So I, I unfairly, I pretend I'm on the flip side of that and I can get through to this non GI Joe fan with just the right issue, just the right issue. And this would be in the pile that I might try out. Very good. Um, let's talk toys. Mark talks about toys. Ho ho. He talks about GI Joe. He talks about all the toys from the comic book and the animated show. Mark talks about toys. Mark talks about toys. So who did you select to talk about this time, Tim? There's an action figure who, uh, he's a military police uh, canine, <laughs> canine, and he, he comes packaged with a little German shepherd. Uh, and his, his codename is Law. Wow, okay. Intriguing. Tell us more. Well... Uh, Law, uh, he has this giant white helmet. I think I've heard of him. Is, is his code name, is his file name Kurt Bazigian? Is that right? Uh, I, I think he's technically got a different, uh, I think he's technically Christopher Levine, but, uh, oh, fa famously, famously, the Law action figure is, as you said, uh, sculpted in the resemblance of, uh, Hasbro, I think in, I think that, I think in 87, uh, Kirk Bazigian, uh, had had been moved off of the GI Joe brand, but a year later he came back. So he had been one of the marketers, and then later on he's he's the head of marketing for Boys Toys. And this is one of those figures which, as a kid, I think my brother and I knew that this was kind of someone, even though we didn't have a sense that mm, some yeah. GI Joe figures were sculpted in in the likeness of real people and others weren't. We weren't thinking that far into it, but. Clearly, this guy had a specificity to his head and his expression that a lot of other figures didn't. I always liked, uh, there's a great detail on the back of the figure where he has a pair of handcuffs um, hanging from his belt, uh -huh. and it's it's painted silver. And he has a zipper on his blue vest. His vest is unzipped, so you can see his red shirt beneath. And uh, there's just a, a nice extra bit of sculpting uh, both on that zipper and also on the, the trim of the vest, where without it being a secondary piece that you put on separately, as as, as happens now with, with action figures, mm -hmm. right? You just get a guy with a red shirt and then you'd put on the vest, right? Here yeah. the vest is just a molded part of his torso. But it very much feels like uh, a separate thing that is bigger on top of him. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's got added, that added dimensions and you can see it on his arms coming, you know, as they come out, that, that they're on a different layer to his vest, really, aren't they? He's got a nightstick, and my brother and I must have either lost that fast, or uh, <laughs> we, we kept our Joes in these two white plastic buckets, and that must have been at the bottom of the bucket and stayed there, because 
That looks pretty unfamiliar to me. We certainly didn't use it in any of our games. Yeah. And and his speciality, it's a bit strange, isn't it? Because military police is all about um, going after the military when they've uh, been behaving badly, right? Particularly around yeah. barracks and, and, and so on. Yeah, or sort of guards, guards at a military base. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, he's intelligence... Uh, is Scarlet intelligence? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, you know, intelligence, I mean, last week we were talking about uh, uh, the first issue of The Devil's Due Run from 2000, and, and Duke in that story has uh, sort of stepped away from his yellow and green costume, and he's just wearing a black uh, suit, and he seems to be some kind of, like, CIA spook, which is to say intelligence, which is to say spy uh if i'm using spy as a as a too blunt umbrella term here mm -hmm. um but i think there are a lot of uh surprising combinations of primary and secondary specialty in the gi joe dossiers where um in order to create more story potential for the comics right larry hama in writing most of the dossiers is uh throwing in some fun curveballs. Um, but also, um, you know, I don't know anything about intelligence in government or the MPs. And so it's it's possible that in ignorance, uh, maybe there there is a lot of crossover there. Yeah, it's probably from uh, from me reading British war comics and the sort of type, type of role that the MPs would play there where they're sort of, uh, uh, you know, you've got your cocky uh honorable private um and uh and he's being set up by the uh the upper class corrupt uh officers and uh the uh mps are his lackeys to to sort of meet out unwarranted punishment on uh on our uh, yeah yeah plucky um, upstart uh yeah <laughs> kind of character i'm thinking particularly of uh charlie's war which, uh, if you're not familiar with, uh, you should seek out immediately, post-haste. There's also a sentence in Law's uh, dossier that says, he is also airborne qualified. So this guy jumps out mm. of airplanes with parachutes. And, something <laughs> and that a I, dog on a parachute as well, maybe. Something that I, something that I didn't uh, consider or know when I was a kid, uh, and my brother was into military stuff he had some you know coffee table books on airplanes and um you know we went to an air show or two at a military base um is that so as a kid i think my understanding was that uh sort of the average soldier did have one specialty i mean separate from what uh the gi joe file cards say and my understanding as i got a little older is that um if you stay in the armed forces um so I, I have a I have a sort of distant family member who, um, you know, he he was an active duty soldier and he was deployed and then he came home for a year or two and he stayed in the service and then he went to like grad school in uh, in the military right I think he was a ranger and uh, so he got a degree and like now he can do uh, now he can work with like an ambassador but he's also uh trained and smart enough that he could he could go on a mission though i think he because of his age and his 
uh, his other qualifications, he's very unlikely to. In a very general sense, as I've gotten older, uh, sort of this fun combination in Lost dossier makes sense to me where, like, no, some people, the longer they stay in the military, the more things they do, and those things don't necessarily all combine. It's like, well, this is my second career in the military, or I, have these, I do these two things. I can do these two things. I really only do one of them. Mm. And if we're talking about law as well, I think we have to conclude with his most famous quote from G.I. Joe, the movie, which is probably the best line from, from the film. He says, he finds the bombs. I drive the car. We tried it the other way, but it didn't work. I, I, in, my, in my mind, there's a five-part miniseries for 1988 that, <laughs> that introduces uh, a bunch of new characters for the 1988 line but also allows the new characters from G.I. Joe the movie in 1987, particularly law and order, to have sort of one scene where they can do something, right? Something to bridge that gap between the movie in 87 and the, the new episodes by a different studio in 89. So uh, in my fantasy, yes, law and order get to do one more thing uh, that's both entertaining and funny in, in this in these episodes that don't exist. I thought you were about to say we get we we finally get to that see that see that scene where uh, Law <laughs> lets order dr- try to drive the car, um, <laughs> which might also be good. <laughs> okay, cool. And uh, let's move on now to what might possibly be my favourite segment, which is GI Joe merchandise. You know, G.I. Joe ain't just toys, funny books, and tunes. Those guys are licensed anything. So funky, so nice, G.I. Joe merchandise. Do you need it? Sure you do. It's G.I. Joe branded, fool. What shall we make? We can't decide. Pick some old crap and put Flint's face on the side. On the side. T-shirts, funkers, sticker shampoo, lunchbox soap, jackets, underoos. Yeah, that's right. I said underoos. Badges, brushes, combs and mugs, telephones, tissues, and probably hugs. Hot damn. G.I. Joe hugs? Radios, candy, tense tattoos, with a G.I. Joe logo they just can't lose. Door knocker, doorbell, even doormat. They're probably brand your dog and your cat. So funky. So nice, it's G.I. Joe merchandise. Do you need it? Sure you do. It's G.I. Joe branded, fool. What shall we make? We can't decide. Pick some old crap and put Flint's face on the side. It's G.I. Joe merchandise. So I am shaking. I'm shaking a, a Out of small... excitement. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not physically shaking myself with okay. my arms. I'm manipulating an object back and forth. Uh, this is a this is a small board game from 1986 called GI Joe: Live the Adventure. It's mm. made by Milton Bradley. By then, Milton Bradley had been bought by Hasbro, and so uh, this makes sense from a licensing standpoint. Um, Battle of the Cobras a- and sorry? So age. It's from ages six to ten. Yes. So are you legally allowed to own this? Legally, yes. Um, <laughs> okay. Legally allowed to own it, yes. Play, no. Okay, um, battle the Cobras and be the first to win six badges of honor. Oof. So um, if you are used to a standard um, 
sorry or Parcheesi or Monopoly box from the 1980s. This is both um, less wide and less long. It's a, it's a small board game box. And notably, there's a cheapness to it because <laughs> there isn't... So those other games, they're shrink-wrapped. You take off the plastic and you pull the lid off. With this game, um, there's the, the, the printing on the box lid, right? The color image, which is a blow-up of uh, Hector Garrido's gorgeous 1986 catalog uh, painting where where the Joes are heading around a corner. There's a kid with a stick, roadblocks swinging in, and there's some cobras up on a ravine in the distance. Mm. Um, this this box lid, uh, this the sort of printing on the box lid is actually sort of a uh, an adhesive label Ooh. that goes past the lid and onto the bottom of the box. So it's not like you take the plastic off and you pull the lid off. What happens here is you take scissors or a knife and you cut the seam around the bottom and um, and the, the box, sorry, it's just very thin. It's, it's more like paper, it's more paperboard like a box of cereal and less cardboard like a, like a game. Uh, anyway, so um, the instructions are printed on the inside of the lid. The board opens up and again, it's smaller than say standard Monopoly, um, but it is, it, it does have the normal heft uh, of such a, such a board and it's got a laminate cover. Uh, there's a, it's somewhat red. There's a giant orange circle on it. Uh, so your pieces move around in a circle and the uh, 86 Hawk package painting gets the sort of center uh, spot with a big GI Joe logo. Um, today opening it, this is the second time I've ever opened this box. Um, and I'll tell you a funny story about how I got it. Um, the only other thing in this box is another um, paperboard uh, sort of template and uh, perforated are various uh, paperboard um, orange tokens uh, and uh, sort of medals of honor. And then uh, there's, a, there's a sort of a falcon stand-up card and then uh, hit the dirt card, a shoot high card, a shoot low card, and a jump up card. Uh, and then it's got a little piece of plastic so you can keep your uh, falcon figure uh, quote standing up and a red six-sided die. In um, 1996, my 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 friend Nick and I, uh, he's a, he's a producer writer in New York, but he's also editing my book. We were at the beach in Ocean City, Maryland, which is a a place where my family had gone for. Uh, 20 years every summer and we stayed at a motel next to it was a beach shop with bathing suits and paperback novels and lawn chairs and flip-flops and candy and some toys like beach toys you know like sandcastle molds um, like plastic toy cars and uh, we'd go there every year just sort of see what they have and get a little candy, but it wasn't really a, a shop for us. It was a shop for families. You know, mm. you need like sunscreen or sunglasses. And um, the shop very much felt like the 1950s or 60s, <laughs> right? This part of Ocean City was uh, not untouched from the 50s, but hadn't been developed much. And in the toy section uh, was this board game. Was this, this is 1996. 
was this 1986 G.I. Joe board game. And they had at least two of them. And there were a couple other sort of toy adjacent things which had just been sitting there for 10 or 13 years. And we were tickled by this because in 96, I was basically no longer buying G.I. Joe as a as a kid mm -hmm. to play with toys, but I was transitioning to keeping some of the figures in the package. I was becoming a toy collector. Mm -hmm. And where I occasionally saw sort of mint in package or mint things like coloring books, you know, I had now been to two or three of the Transformers conventions and it's not just toys, it's the accessories. I would buy some of this stuff because it was fun and nostalgic and, and in this case, cheesy, right? This is not an amazing board game. There's not a lot to do. And uh, in terms of the like tangible sort of accessorizing of it, you know, like in Monopoly, you have houses and hotels and property cards and money. And in this, not so much. Yeah, not even like little tin figures. Yes, no plastic figurines, no metal figurines, big disappointment, right? My, my general rule for board games is I don't want to play with little pieces of paper. I want to mm. play with little pieces of plastic. Uh, the, pr the price tag on this is $4.99 to give you to give you a sense of it. Um, so uh, we got back to the motel and we opened it and we're just immediately disappointed. But we knew <laughs> going in based on sort of the trappings, that, right? So the bottom of the box, it's just brown paperboard. Mm -hmm. It's not, the bottom isn't laminated with a photo of the game board and like three kids around it playing. Um, there's, no, there's no artwork or painting or text on the bottom of the box, it's just brown. Um, so I opened it that one time then and I opened it a second time just now. I'm really glad I own it. I do want to play it, and I showed it to my wife before I sat down at the uh, at the microphone this morning. Um, and uh, she's interested. Um, <laughs> but for those of you who are sad that I in that ten years later I, I opened up a mint sealed GI Joe thing, and uh, and that it's not mint anymore. Don't worry, I bought two. <laughs> Well, thinking ahead. Uh, do you think these are, are these collectible? Do these have quite a, a you know, a, a, a eBay price tag to them nowadays? Um, it didn't occur to me until you finished that sentence uh, to check. This is, um, you, you know, so much of my collection is fun things I've gotten along the way that I'm not desperate to sell. And so I sort of forget that I could. Yeah. Um, and yes, that I have a second one, I guess means I could sell one. And I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing with the mint sealed one. It's not like I'm going to give that to some nephew or neighbor. Mm. Uh, now you can experience the joy of playing a brand new GI Joe board game for the first time. And live um, the adventure to be uh, uh, more pointed. I, I'm guessing your, our listeners right now are thinking, why are they checking eBay? So, uh, so I'll, let's go. Yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a story of something very surprising that happened to me just this week. Uh, I, I noticed a guy uh, on on Instagram that that I follow on the Talking Joe account. Um, he had posted his Woolworths UK Woolworths exclusive mail away hooded Cobra Commander with file card, and um, it, it was the only way in the UK you could get this darker blue, very nice looking uh, vintage. Cobra, well, not vintage at the time, <laughs> Cobra Commander with the, the hooded look. And, um, you know, he'd, he would just be posted in a plastic baggie and he had a uh, black and white file card, um, you know, looking fairly basic. 
and I I I posted onto Instagram. Oh, funny enough, I've got I've got this. It's a, an A5 sized flyer, uh, which was the thing that was promoting the figure, and you know it had all of the blurb about uh, just save up some till receipts. You know, cut off the panel at the bottom, and you can post it in and get back your Cobra Commander. And I imagine they're probably quite quite hard to come by because it was you know just a promotional leaflet and if you did pick it up you probably only picked up one and uh you know you'd cut it out and send it off and probably discard the the rest um so so i said yeah it's a bit of fun and and you know there was a few inquiries about can i uh may, maybe sell it and i said yeah sure you know, i hadn't really thought about selling it it's something i've been just hold on held on to for for over you know 30 years probably um but why not? I've known it. I've no idea what the value is. So just to make it fair, I'll just stick it on uh, on eBay. Low starting price. Um, if, if if you know there's interest, then people can can buy it and uh, and it will find its you know find its uh, value. And uh, it's not finished yet. But at the time of speaking, it's up to about 120 pounds. Whoa! <laughs> I was thinking, you know, I might get maybe if I'm lucky, five pounds for it, ten pounds jeepers um so that was surprising all right so uh, uh on ebay uh, the gi joe live the adventure board game sealed 30 bucks uh opened 10 to 25 okay not too i want to read i just want to read three sentences three short sentences to you from mm. the instructions which are again printed on the inside of the lid your basic turn the G.I. Joe playing piece is shared by all players, right? So <laughs> who, who, who's ever turn it is, they roll the die and this, this little paperboard uh, Falcon card that has a little plastic uh, stand, you move that around. And then the next person who goes, they roll the die and then they move it around, right? Unusual. So weird. And I'm going to go on a limb and say, not fun. Also, uh, <laughs> uh energy spaces on your turn whenever gi joe stops on a space labeled energy check your energy supply if any of your energy tokens are face down you may turn them all face up again uh, okay this sort of feels like it's not really about gi joe it's just about generic anyone doing anything and <laughs> like if this was a transformers game and you just added a letter or two it's like, oh, my Autobots are out of Energon and I can recharge. That feels integrated. This feels like sort of any board game template had G.I. Joe grafted onto it. Uh, and then the final sentence in the instructions, winning the first player to place all six of his badges uh, of honor on the game board wins the game. So uh, it's, it's some kind of, you know, uh, random chance race collection game thing very good and was the was the art the live the adventure art was that used in other places aside from the the box cover yeah that's the 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 catalog the cross cell that came in all the boxed 86 toys you uh -huh. know, the, you, so it would be uh yeah so it'd be a very familiar image from that that era already yeah okay very good shall we move on to your favorite segments in you Joe? <laughs> Yes, we should. Attention, 
At this moment, you are now listening to Talking Innuendo. If you are offended by words like Sucking, Flesh Wound, Willy, Pete, Balls, Crystal Balls, Hypno Shield, whatever, take the tape out now. This is not a pop album. And by the way, suck my grandmother's brick in a Prada handbag. Okay, so just to remind everyone that if you're in the right frame of mind, specifically my frame of mind, then G.I. Joe names can sound a little bit dirty. Um, And what I am going to do here is read out a list of some of those names. And I'm going to be validated if Tim titters and the round will come to an end if we get a guffaw. So here we go. (laughs) It It doesn't count if I laugh. Wet down. <laughs> uh, yes, I've won. <laughs> We're going to stop I, there. <laughs> again, I want to point out, uh, I doth protest, because as I said two episodes ago, uh, I, 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 I don't like making fun of G.I. Joe, and I don't like people making fun of G.I. Joe. So I don't like being forced to make fun of G.I. Joe. <laughs> This is the tax you get for being on this show. Okay. And the fact that we finished so early means that there's even more for next time. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So, yeah, that was it. Um, This time, next fortnight, uh, we will be covering issue 278, which will be an all-Arctic um, what we call in them, Untold Tale. And the cover's looking exciting. It's got Snowjob and Blizzard and Iceberg and other people who I will not strain to try and work out who they are now. Um, so so do the reading for that. In uh, one week's time, we will be back for the second instalment of the Disavowed Era. And we will be covering the rest of the opening salvo. Uh, that is issues two, three, and four from uh, Devil's Due slash Image from 2001 slash 2002. And in the meantime, you can find us at all of the usual places. Talkingjoe.co.uk has them all. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email youtube and what not where can people find you again tim facebook.com slash a real american book instagram.com slash a real american book and best of all where the meat is a real american book.com very good stuff and when all said and done you can catch us down the road and we've been talking joes and, and we're, we're all, all out, out of, of- Joe's <laughs> jinx. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you, Mark. Thank you, listeners. Later's. And while we were doing all of that talking, um, I n- noticed, and you might want to flick to this in the very middle of the issue, of the very middle of issue two hundred and seventy-seven, right by the staples on the left-hand side, there is a Toxo Viper lying on the ground. And what is that by his feet? Oh, geez. Yeah. It's a light source. (laughs) Uh, Yeah.
Uh, wow. Um, also, it's it's a white light. It's not. That's my cat. It's a white light. It's not. It's not a green light. 